open them to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We'll continue our, our study this morning of John the Baptist and the ministry that he had there around the Jordan. And last week we looked at verses 1 through 6. And this morning we'll, we'll continue and look, through verses, look at verses 7 through 14. Let's hear God's word together. It says, he said, therefore, to the crowds, that is John the Baptist, that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is, is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone, but threats by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Repentance and newness of life. Well, last week we began our studies here by considering several aspects of the person and the work of John the Baptist, we said that, that having had such a, a promising start with miracles, with angels, with prophecy, that, that the hopes for John were understandably high. Uh, but as we come now, as, as Luke kind of reintroduces us to, to the adult John, uh, what we find is an odd man uh, with a surprisingly large following. You recall that, that John has spent the majority of his time out in the wilderness, while he was there, he's made some pretty questionable fashion choices, and his diet is, seems to be one that's more fit for a wild animal than it is for a man, right? He's eating locusts, he's eating wild honey, and so it seems, at least on the surface, that there's very little that, that would endear John to a crowd, uh, or that would seem to make people want to follow him, to come out and see him. And yet we saw in all four Gospels that the writers there speak to the success, to the scope of John's ministry, that people are indeed coming out, that they want to experience his words, that they want to experience this baptism that he has to offer. Now, the question for us, of course, it was, was how, can we, how can we account for this? What is it about John that, that made him so successful? What was it about his message? What was it about his person? And so we began last week just by considering two aspects of that ministry, two aspects of that message. First, we saw the source, the power behind it. And we said that that was kind of starting, that was kind of showing our hand from the beginning, right? But in verse 2, it says that the word of God came to him and that he went out based on that word of God. What John had to say was not his words, it's not his ideas. He didn't suddenly wake up one day and say, well, I think I'm just going to go out today and try to accomplish all of these things. No, God came to him. The Holy Spirit worked in his heart 
sent him out. And it was the Holy Spirit that was responsible for the success he had. It was the Holy Spirit that was working in the lives of these people that came out to see him. The power was in the source. The power was in God. Secondly, we saw the purpose of John's message, right? We see that in verses four through six, those familiar words uh, from, from Isaiah. John's goal was not to, to gain popularity for himself, but it was at every moment to prepare the way for the coming Christ, right? Remember, we saw in John chapter three, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. And at every moment, that is the way that, that John lived his life. Every, at every moment, he was praising, he was preparing the way for the Lord. Now, having considered those two things, I think we're ready to, to move to the next part of John's ministry that I want us to think about today. And that's the, the message itself. What was it that John really had to say? Well, it's really summed up for us well in verse 3, right? In verse 3, it says, And he went out into all the regions around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, that word repentance, it's one that we hear thrown around a lot in Christian circles, right? Uh, we, we all say, uh, we talk about repentance. We all know that we need to do it. And rightly so, if you look at the confession of faith uh, in chapter 15 and in section 3, it says, Yet it is, repentance is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect to be pardoned without it. Those kind of reflect Jesus' own words in John chapter 13. You remember he, he's speaking there and, and twice in verses 3 and 5 he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so we understand clearly that that repentance is an important, necessary part of the Christian life. But the question for us today is really twofold. First, do we really understand what repentance is? And then secondly, if we do, are we doing it? Are we actively repenting? Well, I want to submit to you that, that in our passage today, John helps us to answer both of those questions. First, we're going to see that, that, that he, he shows us what true repentance looks like. And then secondly, he shows us the urgency with which we should be doing it. If we understand what it really looks like, he gives us the urgent call to go and repent. Well, let's look at this passage together. The first thing that I want you to see is repentance means knowing ourselves. Repentance means knowing ourselves. Now, as we consider John's message here in verse 7, I think we're all immediately struck by the boldness with which he speaks, right? He comes out and he doesn't pull any punches. Remember, we said last week that, that looking like he does, we might expect him to come out and try to get on the people's good side to kind of soften his message, give them something that they can handle. He didn't do that. He comes out swinging. And what I want you to notice is that he hits them in all of the places that frankly would have made them the maddest. But it was also the places where they needed it the most. 
It was the places that they were leaning on, that they were trusting in for their goodness, that they were trusting in for their salvation. First, notice he hits them there in their morality, in their character. He says, you brood of vipers who told you to flee from the wrath that is to come. This, at least in part, was a Jewish crowd, right? A a Jewish crowd who had God's law, who took pride in their righteousness, their law keeping. John says to them, you're just a bunch of snakes. You're deceitful, you're arrogant, you're liars, you're thieves. You think you have it all together, but you're really just like that snake in Genesis chapter 3, right? It's what Jesus is going to say to them later. You, You are of your father Satan. I think you can imagine how that must have gone over. You know, we've all sat through uh, where there's a revival meeting or we've all sat under our parents and they've said things to us that we don't like to hear. And frankly, it makes us angry, right? That's what happens to these folks here. You can hear them saying, hang on now, hang on. We're Jews, We're Abraham's offspring. We have the law. We have the ceremony. If anybody is righteous, it's us. Notice where John hits them next. He goes after those religious assumptions. He goes after their rights as Jewish people. Look at verse 8 there. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham As our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He says, look, don't give me that Abraham stuff. Don't don't give me your genealogies. Don't give me your ceremonies. Don't give me your festivals. Don't even give me your sacrifices. He says, let's look at your heart. Let's look at what's going on in there. It's the same thing that Isaiah says to the people in Isaiah uh, chapter 49. In chapter 29, I'm sorry. And in verse 13, he says, And the Lord says, Because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with his people. They were were coming close to him with with their mouths. They were saying all the right things. But their hearts, their hearts were far away. These people, they think they have it right. They think they have it together. But John tears it all down. He leaves them with this warning in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, look at your lives. Look at your hearts. The truth of what you find there is leading you straight to the fire. John wants them to see the reality of who they are. He wants them to see how desperate their situation is. Because if they don't, they will never, they will never truly repent. Now, look, I won't stand up here this morning and call you names. I won't try to shock you into the reality of the situation. Instead, I'll simply ask, look at your hearts and honestly, honestly assess what you find there. 
We may put on a good show. We may buy into the world's lie that we're all just basically good people. But our hearts reveal the truth. We can't go an hour. We can't go a minute without speaking unkindly, without putting ourselves before someone else, without thinking in a way that is inappropriate. You know, we may all can live with the idea that nobody sees our lust or sees our anger or sees the way that we covet, the way we worry. You know, we think we hide all of those things well. The reality is, is the God who sees all things, he sees those things. And he is the one to whom we must give an account. Every action, every word, every thought is laid bare before him. Now, someone will say, oh, I go to church. My parents, my grandparents, they went to church. I read my Bible. I've even been baptized, as we're going to see today. I'm good. I have it together. But friends, while those things, they are important, they are necessary, like the Jews and their ceremonies and their genealogies, those things cannot change your heart. They cannot change your standing before God. We can go through the motions, we can speak in religious terms, and we're good at that, especially in the South. We're good at going through the motions. We're good at saying all the right things. We can come from the right families. Friends, none of those things can save us. Even repentance itself. I didn't read that part of the confession, but listen to what it says about repentance. It says, although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is an act of God's free grace. It says, don't even rest in repentance itself. All of those outward actions, all of those things that, that we do, they're rubbish, right? That, that they are filthy rags. Now look, I, I understand that this is not the uplifting portion of our sermon. It's hard. It's painful to look at ourselves honestly. To, to assess what is in our hearts. But I ask again, can you see your desperate need for forgiveness? If not, then you will never do what comes next. You, you will never honestly do what John calls us to do. Friends, assess your hearts. Look honestly at what you find there. Well, that leads us to our second point. We've seen that repentance means knowing ourselves. But secondly, repentance means turning away, but also turning to. Turning away and turning to. It seems here that, that John's words, they have their desired effect, right? Because in verse 10, the people cry out, what are we to do? Which is kind of a theme in Luke's writing. If you go through, you're going to see that, that call a lot. You get over to Acts, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Peter preaches his great sermon. What do the people say? Brothers, what do we do? That's the right question. When, when you find yourself, when you're honest, that, that's the right question. Well, John's answer, at least in part, is repent. Repent. And there's two things I want you to see about that. First, it means turning away from sin. Look, that, that makes sense to us, right? If sin is something bad, if sin is something that, that is bad for us, 
then surely we need to get away from it. If there was a giant spider right here on this pulpit, I wouldn't just kind of play with it. I wouldn't see how close I could get to it without getting bit. I wouldn't even hang around and look at it. I would turn tail and run the other way. I would get as far away from it as I could. Well, to repent means to do that exact same thing with sin. We don't play with it. We don't see how close we can get to it and not get burned. We turn around and we go the other way. We run from it. Again, let me share with you from the confession. This, this section was too good not to share. It says, by repentance, a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of their, his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. He grieves for and he hates his sin as to turn from them all. That's what repentance means. It means hating our sin. It means seeing how awful it really is and turning from it. Now, there's a second part, though. It's not just turning away. You know, if we just turned away, then that would leave us just looking out into nothing, right? No, he says also repentance is turning away, but it's also turning to. It's turning to Christ. Remember, what's John's message all along the way? He's pointing us to Jesus. And so he doesn't want them to turn to, to, uh, to themselves. He doesn't want them to turn to some guru out in the world. He doesn't want them to turn to, to some self-help book. He wants them to turn to Jesus. Repentance is running from sin and it's running to Christ. Confessing the truth of who we are. Telling him our sins. Telling him our struggles. And throwing ourselves on his mercy. You know, it's the tax collector in Luke 18, right? He says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. He won't even look up. He's so overwhelmed by the reality of who he is. All he can say is, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's repentance. It's Paul in 1 Timothy saying, he is the chief of sinners. Paul just wouldn't, he wasn't playing around there. He wasn't saying that for effect. He looked at his heart. That was the reality he saw. He was the chief of sinners. Friends, repentance is coming to the judge, the one who has the right to condemn us, and crying out for forgiveness. Think about that. What, what a position for sinners to be in before a holy and righteous God, empty-handed, crying out to him. But you know, we've seen the, the bad part of this, right? We've had to assess ourselves, but here's the good part. Here's the, here's the glorious part of the gospel. When we come that way, honestly and empty-handed, looking in faith to our Savior, we don't find a fist. We don't find an angry countenance. We don't even find demands to, to get it all together and then come back. We might expect that, right? Somebody came to us this way, we'd say, look, I can't take you in, but if you'll go and get it all together and come back later, maybe then I can take you in. That's not what Jesus does. No, he, he forgives. 
We find simply his grace and his mercy. It's there on the top of your page. First John one. I left it there from last week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Right. You think about Psalm 103 that that we read for our call to worship. He separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And then, of course, Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are resting in Christ Jesus. But friends, maybe the the best example is that parable of the prodigal son. And look, I know that that's a a story about two sons and that's really a story about a father. But but think about what what happens there. That, That prodigal son, he comes and he basically spits in his father's face. He says, I wish you were dead. Give me your money. Give me the money that belongs to me when you die. So that I can go do what I want to do. And the father does it. He gives him the money. And the son, and he goes, he lives it. He lives it up. He spends all the money on all the wrong things. And by the end of it, where does he find himself? Broke. In a pigsty. Eating pig's food. And as he looks at himself, as he looks at his heart, he realizes the truth of what he's done, of who he is. He says, if I could just go back to my father and live as a servant in his house, it'd be better than this. My my father's servants live better than this. I'm going to go throw myself on his mercy. I'm going to go see if he'll just take me back in. And so he goes, and I love it. On the way, he's rehearsing his speech, right? Lord, I'm unworthy to be called a son in your house. If you'll just make me a slave, just make me a servant. And what happens while he's walking along the road? The father sees him from far off and he jumps off and he runs out to greet him. And my favorite part of the whole story is the son. He's got this speech worked up and he goes to say, he says, Father, I have sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And before he can get it out of his mouth, what's the father doing? He's wrapping him up. This son of mine that was gone, he has returned He's wrapping in his love. He's wrapping him up. He says, look, go get the best tunic. Go get the ring. Go, go kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party. Because this son of mine that was gone, he is now back. Friends, that's repentance. That's what repentance looks like. We run back to him in our filth, covered in pig slop, having eaten pig food. And we cry out for mercy. And before we can get the words out of our mouths, he's wrapping us up. He says, I love you. This son of mine that was gone, this daughter of mine that was gone, it has now returned. Let's have a party. Go kill the fattened calf. Bring them the best stuff. Bring them Jesus' righteousness. Bring, us, bring the stuff that belongs to Jesus. It now belongs to them. That's Repentance. It's fleeing from our sin. And it's looking to Jesus, to his mercy, to his grace. Friends, I have to ask, do you know that kind of forgiveness? Can you go home tonight and rest easy knowing that though your sins were as scarlet, in Christ they have been made white as snow? Have you truly repented? And look, don't, don't miss the, the urgency with, with which John gives them this call to repentance. Verse 9 again. He says, even now, 
The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Those are hard words. They're the truth. This same Jesus who is merciful and gracious, he is also the judge who who is coming back. And one day, either in death or in his return, we're going to have to stand before him. And the question is, is how will we do that? Will we stand as that prodigal son did, confessing our sins, leaning on his mercy? Will we stand in judgment? As if the Lord is is working in your heart today, don't don't delay. The axe is at the roots. Don't, Don't delay. Confess your sins and look to Jesus. Only he can forgive. Only he can truly save you. Well, we've seen uh, that repentance means knowing ourselves. It means turning away and turning to. And then thirdly and finally, I want you to see that repentance means walking in newness of life. It means walking in newness of life. And you see this really from the very beginning of our passage, don't we? How is it that, that John knows that these people are unrepentant? It's because their lives don't bear any fruit. It's because there's no evidence of it in the way that they live. You see that in verse 8. You see that in verse 9. Now, the point here, of course, is not to suggest that, that these good works, that they save us or that they even contribute to our salvation. That the Bible is as clear about that as it is about, about anything. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's it. But it's also equally true that if we truly are saved, if we truly are repentant, then our lives will bear the evidence of that, right? James chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. Think about Galatians 5. Paul calls us to bear the the fruits of the Spirit, right? Gives us that long list of things. And of course, in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. What does he say happens to those vines that don't bear fruit? God cuts them off. If we truly have turned from sin and turned to Christ, then it will surely lead to new desires, new emotions, new loves, a newness of life. And so John calls us to that here, but he doesn't simply call us to it. He also shows us, at least in part, what that newness of life should look like. And you see that in verses 10 through 14. And what I'm about to give you is not an exhaustive list. It's not every way that you could apply these things by any means. But these are a few ways that we could apply what he says there in those verses. First, I want you to notice that newness of life. It means letting go of those things that that we might be tempted to cling to. Notice he calls them to, if you have two tunics, to let go of one. If you have money, tax collectors, let go of that desire. Even the, the soldier, that, that, power for, that, that hunger for power, let go of that. Even the necessity of food, let go of the excess, let go of your idols, let go of those things that, that, that you put before God, right? Secondly, he says newness of life is caring for other people. It's not just that we let go of those things, but we share them with others. He says if you have a tunic, give it to somebody else. If you have food, give it to others. People in positions of power, you tax collectors, you soldiers. Don't extort people. Don't take advantage of people. No, no, treat people with kindness. As you have been treated, as you have been forgiven, 
Go out now and live that way. Thirdly, he says newness of life means living honestly. It means living truthfully. Again, those tax collectors, those soldiers, they could have easily gone out and done really whatever they wanted to. They could have taken advantage of people and nobody would have known. And even if they had known, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have really done anything about it. But here's the reminder that to live in Christ means to live honestly and openly before him. It means in all of our actions, the ones people can see and the ones they can't, to live with a truthfulness, live with an honesty. And then finally, notice that, that walking in newness of life, and this really sums it all up well, means to live with contentment. Contentment, that's what he says there at the end of verse 14, right? He's talking to those soldiers. He says, you know, don't take advantage of people. Be, be content with the wages that you have. Now, we've said many times that what a challenge this is for us in our world, in our culture, where we constantly need more, where we constantly need to be better, higher than the next guy, how hard it is for us to find contentment. But the Christian call is a call to contentment, not because God's going to give us everything we want, but because he has promised us he will surely give us everything we need. If he can clothe the flowers in the fields, if he can take care of the birds in the air, if he has counted the number of hairs on our head, if he sent Jesus to die for us, then surely he can care for us. Surely he can give us what we need. And so we can be content. We can rest in whatever circumstances and whatever things God has given us. And look, I'm preaching to myself here because that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. What the Bible calls us to over and over and over again. And so to to, to be truly repentant means to to live lives that look different. It means to walk in newness of life. And again, this is not exhaustive. Walking in newness of life is going to face different challenges for all all of us because we're all sinners in different ways, right? Now, Now, the call is the same. Our lives will look similar, but the challenges we face will be different. So you know your heart. You know the challenges you face, and so we can apply God's word in that way. But the point that I'm I'm trying to get to is that true repentance, it does bear fruit. To some degree, it may be small, it may be slow, it may be a struggle, but it does bear fruit. We, We have God's word on that. Philippians 3, you know, he's running the race. He says, I don't look behind me, I don't look beside me. But I press on to the goal. I press on to Jesus. Romans 7 says, the things that I want to do, Paul says, I don't do. The things that I should do, I'm not doing. Things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. He says, who's going to save me from this? Thanks be to God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there's Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you, he will surely complete it. Yes, This is a reminder to us that that repentance is not a one-time thing. That we have to repent over and over and over again. Not not be re-saved over and over and over again, but run to Jesus, confessing our sins, being reminded of our Savior's great love for us. Learning more and more to look not to the world, not to ourselves, 
to look only to Him, the only one who can transform us, the only one who can give us truly repentant hearts. And so we walk, we walk in a newness of life. Friends, as we close, let me simply ask you again. Are you loaded down with sin today? Are you loaded down with guilt? Do you feel your great need for forgiveness? Are you tired of doing things your way and getting nowhere, looking to the world and getting nowhere, having to go through the same things over and over and over again, having to feel loaded down with all of this every single day? So, let me invite you to repent. Let me invite you to turn from your sin. To turn to Jesus. Whether it's the first time or whether it's the hundredth time. Turn today from your sins and rest in Christ. Again, He is the only one who can forgive them all. And He is the only one who can truly save you. Let's pray together. Father, we... Thank you for for this, your word. Lord, you call us to repent. And Lord, the the reality is, is we're not very good at that. We we look at our lives and we try to convince ourselves that things are better than what they appear. And Lord, we know that that it's only by your goodness. If there is any progress, it's only by the, the Spirit's work in us. And so we pray that you would help us to be honest about that. Help us to see our sins for what they are. And Lord, that we would come to you, that we would confess our sins that we would turn from them and that we would turn our eyes to our Savior. And Lord, what a joy it is to know that when we do that, that you don't turn us away, that you don't tell us to go back out and to come back later on when we've got it together. Lord, you simply, simply wrap us in your love. You forgive us of our sins once and for all, not to, not to bring them back up later on, but, but to forgive us completely. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today who does not know that forgiveness, who needs that forgiveness, maybe for for the hundredth time, as we've said, Lord, that you would help us to to fall down before you, to to seek your grace, to seek your mercy. Pray that you would work in our hearts. It's the name of our in the name of our Savior. We pray these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number. I don't know. 565, thank you. 565, if you would please stand, we'll sing together.